0: Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com.
1: Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show.
2: Is it entirely up to Congress to implement uh, the disqualification uh, in Section 3? It is entirely up to Congress.
1: The Supreme Court case against Trump. Thursday, February 8th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR in WBY Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Marsha Fudge, on how she's trying to close the growing racial gap in home ownership. And a Palestinian man came to California as part of a growing fellowship between Palestinian Muslims and American Christians. Now he's stuck there because of the war.
3: My family, they supported me. They said, like, you have to stay there. It's safer for you. Even though I know it was hard for them too.
1: But first, what happened at the Supreme Court today? Today was oral arguments in the case that Trump brought after a Colorado Supreme Court ruling said he could be kicked off the ballot because he tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election. It's been interesting stuff. And to help make sense of it all, we called up Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine. Here's her conversation with Robin Young. Just your thoughts on
4: the arguments of the Trump team.
5: Yeah, I mean, they definitely in their brief put a lot of weight on this idea that the president is not an officer of the United States. I think you can hear there some skepticism from Justice Sotomayor. And it seemed, listening to argument, that this part of the Trump side's uh, case is probably not going to be the main rationale for the Supreme Court's holding. It Mm -hmm. seemed like the court was interested in finding a way to keep Trump on the ballot, to not allow states to disqualify him. But it didn't seem like this officer argument was the off-ramp that they were likely to choose, at least not most of them.
4: What about another one, the Trump team's argument uh, on the word holding, uh, uh, which is what it says. You, You can't hold an office. They say, well, it doesn't say run for office.
5: Yeah, that one had a couple of takers. Um, Alito and Gorsuch, two of the justices, seemed interested in this distinction. So it was a little more popular than officer. But again, it wasn't the main thing that the justices were focused on.
4: Yeah. And what about Jason Murray representing Colorado, uh, responding to Trump lawyers or making that state's case?
5: Well, I think the the you know, the hardest uh, argument for Murray to make on Colorado's behalf is that this decision should be up to the individual states. A lot of the justices seemed really skeptical about that. And Justice Kagan very clearly talked about this. She said, It just seems like this is a national question, who gets to run for president. She said, how can it be that a single state gets to decide who gets to be president of the United States? And that kind of federal interest in who's on the ballot for the presidency, that seemed to be something that was also troubling Chief Justice Roberts and several other uh, members
4: of the bench. Okay. well, Trump's lawyer also argued that the events of January 6th aren't an insurrection. Let's listen.
1: We never accepted or conceded in our opening brief that this was an insurrection. What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection. All right, so why would this not be an insurrection?
6: What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because, I think you say, um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow the government. That's one of
1: many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this and so the point the Kirk, is that a
6: chaotic effort to overthrow the government is
2: not an insurrection? No, we didn't concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson.
1: Uh, Justice
4: uh, Katanzi Brown Jackson. Um, Emily, your thoughts? I
5: think that the Supreme Court is going to stay away from this question of whether Trump engaged has implications for him politically and also for his criminal exposure. And I think they're going to pick one of these other bases for deciding the case to keep him on the ballot without really reaching this question of whether they think that he engaged in an insurrection or not.
4: Emily Bazelon, court watcher, a staff writer, New York Times Magazine. Emily, thank you.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: Coming up next, Deepa Fernandez speaks with Housing Secretary Marcia Fudge about the growing racial gap in home ownership. That's after the break.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Dana-Farber scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years, data through 2022. They've made one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. More at DanaFarber.org everywhere.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your co-workers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
7: And now to housing, we're boosting black Home ownership has long been a priority for Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge, but a wide racial gap still persists. The home ownership rate for black people is 44% compared to the ownership rate for whites, which is 72%. Meanwhile, homelessness spiked last year as many Americans struggle to pay rising rents. Let's talk about how the Biden administration is addressing these concerns. Secretary Fudge joins us. Welcome to Here and Now, Secretary.
6: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
7: What do you make of the current housing situation nationwide and, and the intricate challenges, really, in particular that people of color face to buy a house, to rent a house, e- even to have a roof over their head at all?
6: Why is this happening? I think if you look at it, this in, in a way that the chickens are finally coming home to roost. We have had a system that has been racist for a very long time. We have a system of segregated—I'm from the city of Cleveland. I live in one of the most segregated cities in the United States, and it has gone on for a very, very long time. And when you combine that with the fact that we have not made any real effort as a nation to build affordable housing in decades, all of it has created a perfect storm. So we, though, through this administration, have really decided to look at this through a lens of racial equity. And we have determined that in order for us to make this change that we know needs to be made, that we have to sit down and look at fair housing laws. We have to uh, talk with our mayors and our county commissioners and governors to talk about the things that they can do to make the situation better. We have to look at a system that has historically devalued uh, Black and brown homes and Black and brown communities. So we're doing a lot of work. It's going to take some time. But certainly, it it has it has happened over over generations. It didn't just start.
7: And and I don't think anybody would would say there are any easy or quick solutions to this. Uh, and I do want to talk to you about solutions that you're working on. Let let me just read from the latest annual homelessness assessment report. It found on a single night in 2023, more than 650 thousand people experiencing homelessness. Six out of 10 were in a shelter, the remaining four out of 10 unsheltered or in places not meant for humans to live. Tell me about some of the solutions that you're working on. I, I know you've made homelessness a priority for, for the Biden administration.
6: We literally, believe it or not, I know it's hard when you talk about the numbers you just raised, we've already helped 1.2 million people who were previously homeless or at risk of being homeless and put them in permanent housing. So these numbers continue to grow because the situation continues to worsen. When you have rents that are rising two and threefold every year, what we are doing is we were pushing people out of housing because they can't afford it. Secondly, what we have done is made sure that anyone who has a mortgage with FHA, we have put them in a position where we have been able to save those homes, more than 2 million of them through the pandemic and beyond. But it is going to take a lot more than what we are doing Certainly, we are giving communities resources to build homes, to preserve homes. When this president came into office, the first thing he did was talk about a rescue plan. So we've got a care package, a rescue plan. We've got infrastructure. Cities and states have more money today than they have ever had.
7: I I want to ask you, Secretary, about home ownership. It's almost the other end of uh, the pendulum when we're talking about the rising numbers of those who are unhoused, but for people, especially black people, people of color who are trying to own their own home, it seems like that dream is so much further away today than it ever was. I know that your administration has has done a lot, helping people become more creditworthy, assisting with down payments, lowering mortgage costs, lengthening mortgages. But I'm wondering if that has had any impact. Is it working?
6: Well, it's absolutely working. I mean, just over the last year or so, we've supported about 765,000 new mortgages through FHA. The bulk of those have been first-time homebuyers because we have first-time homebuyer programs. We have technical technical assistance. We have housing counseling. We've also found that because of the way that the conventional market is, is moving, more and more people are coming to us, to the federal government, for assistance. Because when times get tough, people come to the federal government and we've been providing that assistance and making it easier for them to navigate their way through the process. So, yes, it makes a huge difference.
7: I I want to ask you just finally, one of the solutions to take stress off the housing market is simply to build more houses, increase the supply but that may require some communities to rethink zoning. There can be a lot of pushback to that. There's also uh, building regulations. It seems like there's a lot of red tape that stops simply building new housing. Is there anything you can do at the federal level for that?
6: Well, we do talk to cities about that red tape because we know that red tape, as you call it, but regulations, et cetera, do add about 30% more on top of the cost of a home. And so it makes it not affordable or does it it makes it not profitable for people to build them so we know that's a problem but secondly and more importantly the president has said to communities we want to assist you in looking at your zoning and your planning and your building codes because most communities haven't looked at them in probably 50 or 60 years so he put in the budget about 85 million dollars to assist with making that process smoother because we know that if we can get people to understand that we cannot continue to just build single-family homes, that we're going to have to build homes at a different kind of price point that are smaller, that are more affordable, that can be uh, built faster. So we're looking at manufactured homes. We are looking at modular homes. We're looking at prefab. We're looking at 3D. All of the things that we know can be done quickly and can be done with a certain amount of density so that we can actually start to solve the problem instead of making the problem worse.
7: Housing Secretary Masha Fudge, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you. It's my pleasure to
1: Coming up, sometimes we find good stories just by keeping up with our neighbors. That's the case for our next conversation, where Deepa introduces us to a Palestinian man who came to her town in California and has been unable to get home. Stick around.
0: This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud. Fuel innovation with responsible AI. And detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation from PwC.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. A new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics. Built to move in. Styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to vioricom slash NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why
4: accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about
0: automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not
1: guaranteed. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken wrapped up his latest trip to the Middle East today, having failed to secure an extended ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. Well, we'll continue to follow all the latest out of the region, but we're also taking time to step back from the daily news. And today, we'll bring you the story of one Palestinian Muslim man and his West Bank community's blossoming friendship with a group of American Christians. This particular friendship started back in 2009, when a group of congregants from the Buena Vista Church, where Deepa Fernandez lives in Alameda, California, made a trip to the occupied West Bank they went to visit a village called Wadi Fukin. It's in the Bethlehem district of the West Bank. And over the years, residents of Wadi Fukin have suffered the loss of loved ones and land to the expansion of Israeli settlements. As the Christians from California continued to visit Wadi Fukin over the years, so too did other Americans. They formed a group called the Friends of Wadi Fukin, American Christians Sharing Fellowship with Palestinian Muslims. One engineer from the village, named Adam, designed a guest house for Wadi Fukin so visitors would have someplace to stay. Plans in hand, Adam arrived in the U.S. last August to raise money to build the guest house. But then, the war broke out, and he couldn't get home. Deepa recently sat down with Adam in Alameda. And by the way, we're only using his first name because of security concerns for his family back in the West Bank. Here's his conversation with Deepa.
7: So Adam, when you came to the US in August, it was to fulfill a dream to build a guest house in Wadi Fakim. Why was it important to you to raise money for a place for visitors to stay in your village?
3: First of all, guest house was one of the ideas that we wanted to do in the village, to offer a place for the people to stay in the village, to witness how we live our lives and of course to share with them our traditions, our daily life, our food, to give them more opportunities to live this.
7: I've seen some photos of it. It looks wonderful. Maybe just quickly describe it.
3: Oh, thank you. So I designed this guest house since I'm a structural engineer. And the guest house in the first phase will be like four big rooms, enough for eight people to stay there. Located inside the village, close to the active area of the villagers, which will give the visitors the chance and the opportunity to interact with the people. In the future, we were thinking also to expand this guest house more and more, to make it two or three floors.
7: And why is it important for people to be inside the village, close to observe daily life? What do you think people would learn, Americans would learn from doing that?
3: We want them to know our traditions, to have the chance to live with the people. We had many people over the years, they want to stay there, to help the farmers, to see uh, how our daily life goes. And we didn't have places for this. And also one more thing that we want these people to be in the village, which will give us also kind of secure, that we have international people in the village. They will witness everything that's happening around the village. Uh, about everything that we are talking about, about our environmental and humanitarian issues every day in our daily life.
7: Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
3: Uh, My village, the village of Wadi Foukiin, is an agricultural village. The age of the village is maybe more than 2,000 years. The people there, they live there... uh, over 2,000 years growing their crops, living as farmers there. We had over the years like very clear and clean environment. But uh, during the years, especially after 1948, after the Nakba or the catastrophe for the Palestinians, we started having some environmental and humanitarian issues in the village after they started also building the settlement on the east side. We started losing some of the underground water. We used to have 11 water springs, now we only have five. We started having also waste from their construction work, uh, some raw sewage water flooding from the settlement on our land, which made a big pollution Mm. for our uh, environment.
7: Yeah, and and the photos actually, if one was to see those, show how... There is an incremental loss of the land in Wadi Fakim to this settlement. You were planning to return in November back to Wadi Fakim, to the West Bank. But then there were the attacks of October 7th. Then the Israeli bombardment of Gaza began. Your village is in the occupied West Bank. What did you hear from your family and how did it feel being so far away?
3: Once everything happened... It was very hard for me to keep up with everything and it was very hard for me to cut off contacting my family like I was contacting them the whole time trying to make sure that they are safe. And for me, as you said, I live in the West Bank, but we are always affected by what's happening around us because Palestine is not that big a country. So what's happening here or there affects everyone.
7: So tell me, Adam, what did happen in your village after October 7?
3: The people in the village, they were living in a lockdown. They blocked the only entrance that we have for the village. So my village is located between the borders of Israel and a settlement, so we only have one entrance. They blocked this entrance, I mean the Israeli army. The situation in the West Bank in general was like a total lockdown lockdown. No one can move, no one can go to work, no one can do anything that we used to do before October 7th. And I was hearing from my family, like to go from my village to buy some food, some groceries from Bethlehem, which is the closest city for us, was something almost impossible. And for me also, it was impossible to go back, back then too, yeah.
7: So how is your family surviving, Adam? If they can't go out of the village, it's impossible to work and move around freely.
3: Because we are agricultural village, we use our farms to support ourselves. Which And it's not enough for all of us. It's not enough even for small families. But for now, they are able to survive and support each other. But in the future, in the coming days, I don't know how the situation will be. It's getting harder and harder every day.
7: Adam, you came to the US last August to fundraise, to build this guest house that you told us about. Is that project still going to continue? Or does that even feel possible now?
3: For me, personally, I was so excited to start working on it. But now everything is on hold since we can't uh, do that. And the priorities changed since uh, October. And now there are few things that are happening for the people. We don't know the future how it will be. So hopefully we will be able to build the guest house and start working on it as soon as possible. But this also depends on the future of the village.
7: Before I let you go... Can I ask you how you're doing? It must be really hard being by yourself here in California while all your family is over there.
3: Uh, It is so hard uh, for us as Palestinians. We live with our extended families always. We always have this connection uh, with our families. We see most of our families almost every week. Uh, We live close to our parents or siblings. We see each other usually. So once everything happened, it was the hardest decision in my life. How can I stay here and not go back? But my family, they supported me. They said, like, you have to stay there. It's safer for you, even though I know it was hard for them too. It's something really hard to live with and something that I don't wish for anyone to go through.
7: Adam is an engineer from the village of Wadi Fakin in the occupied West Bank. He's currently in Alameda, California, waiting to go back home. Adam, thank you so much for sharing with us.
3: Thank you, Deepa. Thank you for hosting me and for giving me this opportunity to share.
1: By the way, we asked Israeli authorities about those comments on the restriction of access to Adam's hometown of Wadi Fakin in the West Bank. The Israeli military told us that security forces remain active in the area and that, quote, temporary security measures have been implemented. The IDF also said that currently access to the village of Wadi Fukin remains open. We'll continue to follow the latest, and you can keep up to date on the war in the Middle East and get all kinds of perspectives on it at npr.org slash Mideast Updates. That's it for us today. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Ashley Locke, and Thomas Danielian. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Mikaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Michaela Varela. Mike Moschetto wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow.